we have any kids here, we'd like to dismiss them, kindergarten to grade six. They can head out, their leaders are waiting for you out back. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, welcome here. If you don't know who I am, I'm Jamie, and um, I'm going to be unpacking the scriptures for us in a few minutes. Uh, looking forward to doing that. What a privilege I have. And it's great to be with you, and hello to our online family. We love you. Glad that uh, you're joining in with us uh, this morning. Uh, the last uh, day and a half, we've had a really rich time some of us together. And if you uh, weren't able to make it to the Holy Spirit encounter, uh, but you prayed for us, thank you for praying for us. Uh, we had a wonderful, wonderful time uh, with some rich, uh, rich and deep teaching, uh, some wonderful times of worship and prayer and, uh, and listening to the voice of Jesus. And my, um, both my observation, my experience, and my sort of anecdotal impression is that the Spirit of God was certainly speaking to us over the last day and a half, and people were, were hearing him. Some people maybe for the first time, or, or maybe in, in, in the first time for, in a significant way, and it was a really special, sweet uh, time uh, together. So, um, so that was great to be part of. Um, I hope that you, church family, are understanding what your leadership are calling you to. Um, for the last few years, we have been trying our best to, to lean us towards and posture us us towards a greater um, a connection to God's Spirit and a deeper walk with Jesus. And, uh, and one of the things that we've been really pressing is learning to actually hear God. And we ran a couple of those Hearing God seminars, you may remember before COVID and with Soul Care and, and what we did this weekend. Uh, it, it's, it's partly to that end. We're trying to help people to understand that prayer is not just coming to God and speaking at Him. A whole bunch of things, a big list of things we want to say. It is not a monologue. It never should be a monologue. But a lot of us treat it like it's a monologue. We're supposed to listen. It's a conversation. And that's something that we've been trying to uh, sort of inculcate into the life of the, of the body for some time. And we're going to continue to orient ourselves in that direction. And so I'm looking forward to continue to move forward and encourage you with me, with us, to step into what we believe God is calling us to. And it's a really exciting time, so bless you. Uh, before I dive into uh, the scriptures this morning, uh, I do have a, a, a piece of church family news, a sad piece of news that I uh, have to share with you, and that is that Doris Goldthorpe passed away. And uh, Doris has um, not been able to be in church for a while with us in person. Um, but Doris, uh, many of you know uh, Doris and you, Doris, a uh, sweet, sweet lady, um, and we mourn her passing. We are sad, um, and we want to pray for the family. Uh, but I recognize that Doris was a sweet saint. She loved Jesus deeply, and I love getting to know her over the years. So uh, Martin and Grace, we want to pray for you and for the rest of the family. A um, little bit of detail I do have is that on Friday... Uh, this coming Friday, uh, which is uh, November 10th, uh, there is going to be her memorial service in the community room, and um, it's going to be early afternoon, so call the church office for a confirmed time for that, uh, for that service. So uh, let us pray. 
Father, I want to thank you so much for the life of Doris, and I know that I personally was impacted by, uh, by Doris's uh, love of life and love for you, and I, I just give thanks for her, and we want to pray especially for Martin and Grace uh, this morning, our dear brother and sister who we love deeply, and the rest of the family, Doris's wider family, we lift them all before you. And we ask at this time, as they mourn her passing, that you would be very specially present to them, bringing them comfort. I ask that as they mourn, they will do so well and healthily, and that you would be in that um, experience for them. And I pray that as the days move forward and, uh, and they live in a new reality, which is a world without Doris, um, they would uh, experience your peace and your grace and your love and your walking with them. And so we pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, we are looking at the women that show up in the genealogy of Jesus that is found at the very beginning of uh, Matthew's gospel. And so we've been doing that now for this is week three. We've been doing it for a couple of weeks. And so far, we have looked at the story of Tamar. And Tamar was a childless, likely Gentile widow who was under threat of living out a destitute future. And so Tamar saw the writing on the wall in her life and acted decisively, if a little bit controversially, and in doing so actually played a part, a significant part, in keeping the family line of Judah alive, the line through which Messiah Jesus would come. And it's a fascinating story. It's an interesting story. Rahab, the second woman who shows up in the list, also acted somewhat controversially, but she also had seen the writing on the wall for herself and her family and her city. She saw the writing on the wall, and she also acted. In fact, she stepped over a line of belief of sorts and also acted decisively for herself and her family. And in the New Testament, it says she did what she did. She did by faith. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the story of the third woman, which is the story of Ruth. And, and maybe Ruth is one of the more well-known of the stories of these five women. But the story of Tamar um, can be found in a single chapter of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 38. And the story of, of Rahab can be found in a single chapter in chapter 2 of Joshua. But Ruth is actually an entire book. It's a short book. Uh, for, for the Old Testament. It's only four chapters, but it's a book nonetheless, and so we can't read the entire book today, so I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is read the opening chapters, and I'm going to read the closing chapters, the bookends, and I'm going to kind of tell the story uh, in between. So that's what we're going to be uh, doing. The book of Ruth, if you know your Old Testament, is nestled between, it's this thin little book, is nestled between the much larger books of Judges and First Samuel. And, and it provides a little bit of sort of a bridge uh, between the two, and we'll talk about that more later. Now, the book of Judges tells us the story of the few hundred years or so from the conquest led by Joshua to the kingship that comes about under the leadership of Samuel. There's a few hundred years, and Judges tells us uh, that story. And so, as we saw with the story of, of Rahab, after the people, the new generation had kind of grown up, it was around about one to two million, probably, that had come out of Egypt, that traveled through the wilderness, they died off, off. the next generation had, uh, had come up, and they're, they're camping on the east side of the Jordan River, poised to go in and take the land. 
Okay, and that's where we were at with, with the Rahab story. And from that point, Joshua sends out the two spies and they meet Rahab and so on. And, and that was the story last week. And so this is where we're at. Uh, the conquest is about to happen. After the conquest, once the Canaanites had largely, though not completely, uh, been driven out of the land and the Hebrew people now populated the land, there is a period of this history known as the Judges. And so the Hebrews were a nation of a certain kind, kind of. They had a law, so that, I guess, made them a nation. They had like a constitution. They had a religious system and a priesthood and and so on, and they had a a national identity of sorts. But the best way to describe them would be less a a nation, certainly nothing like a nation that we see today, uh, but not even a nation like the nations around them, but the best way to describe them would be a loose confederation of tribes. That's essentially what they were. And so they didn't have a central figure. They were not a monarchy. There was no king. There was no president. There was no prime minister. Certain leaders, however, got raised up at certain times for certain purposes, and it was usually during a time of crisis, okay? usually during a time of crisis. And they were usually military-type leaders. And so these leaders, known as judges, but not judges like judges in a law court, but rather charismatic leaders that could rally the people, were raised up at certain times in this period. And so some of the famous ones that you would know would include Gideon and Samson and, and so on. So that's the period of the judges. And this is typically what happened. There was, there was this thing called the cycle of the judges. Number one, The people are happy and living peacefully in the land. Number two, they would become complacent after a while, and they would end up into some kind of sin, usually some form of idolatry, worshiping foreign gods, and so on. Number three, because of number two, they were now under the judgment of God because they'd broken covenant, and so judgment would usually fall upon them, and it was often in the form of foreign invaders coming in and taking over their land and oppressing them. Number four, as a result of number three, what they do is they cry out in their distress, oh God, help us, oh God, liberate us. And number five, because of number four, God would then raise up some form of deliverer. He would hear their cry, their distress, their prayer, their intercession, and he would respond and he would liberate the people and they would go to living peacefully in the land. And then they would you know, get bad again, and they would get bad again and bad again. And that's the cycle that continues for hundreds of years throughout the book of Judges. By the time we get to 1 Samuel, the people are beginning to hunger for a king, like the nations around them. We want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And so they begin to ask uh, for a king. And Samuel is this kind of liminal figure. That is, he's, he's kind of like the last judge, sort of. He was a leader of sorts, but he became the kingmaker. So he's this transitional uh, character, this liminal character. And in the books of First and Second Samuel, Israel finally becomes a monarchy with a king. And the first king is Saul, and the second king is David. And many people know uh, those stories, and Solomon, uh, and so on. And in that period, generally speaking, they get a capital city, they get a standing army rather than every man with a shovel will come and fight. They actually get a standing army. They have a central government, if you like. And under Solomon, they actually get a central shrine. They get a temple, a permanent dwelling place for their God. And so this period of Israel's history is this huge 
national, political, governmental, transitional shift time in history. Why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this for this reason. At the end of the book of Judges, the last verse in the book says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and all people did what was right in their own eyes. It's a pretty damning commentary of the time. In other words, moral restraints were thrown off. People did whatever they want. Sounds a little bit like today. Um, you know, and, and, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It was, it was anarchy and, and, and so on. And, and so it's pretty damning commentary. And people are often referred to this as the dark ages of Israel's history. And if you read the last few chapters of the book of Judges, you get these dark, dark stories. The last couple of chapters of these dark stories that you can read, and they don't really fit in with the chronology, so they're best understood as like appendices to the book. And it was almost like the writer was saying, hey, read these couple of stories. They're like exhibit A and exhibit B of the kind of things that were happening during the period of the Judges, if you want to know what it was like. And it was pretty dark. If you want a flavor of what was happening during this time, this is it. I actually think the author of Judges was very pro-monarchy and was like, this is why we need a king. There was no king in Israel. Um, but anyway, the book of Ruth that follows immediately after Judges, as I said, is a bit of a bridge between Judges and Samuel. We'll say more about that later. But what we have is this beautiful story. We actually have this story that took place uh, during the judges' period. In fact, Ruth opens by saying, in the time of the judges, there was famine in the land. So during this period, while the appendices to judges describe this dark, tragic, sinful, broken period of history, Ruth is like a light shining in the darkness. It's a story of love and commitment and family and covenant faithfulness and character, and hope, and overcoming racial barriers, and so on. And it reminds us, church family, that even when things are dark, there's always a remnant. There's always a candle that's kept aflame that God is tending to. There is always good and warmth, even when it's dark, and quite often, He is at work in the lives of people that nobody else is really paying attention to to fulfill his purposes. So let's dive into the first five verses of Ruth. It says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from the Bethlehem in Judah, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. When they had lived there for about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died. So that woman was left without her two sons and her husband. 
So the story begins with the plight of a single, fairly unremarkable family eking out an existence and a life during the time of the judges. They're from Bethlehem, so they were of the tribe of Judah, and there we have the the kind of uh, family line snaking through uh, this time period. The husband and father of the family, Elimelech, is concerned as famine is gripping the land. Maybe they were in you know, number three of the cycle, God's judgment was falling in the form of famine. There's famine in the land, and the father is concerned, how am I going to feed my children? And so you imagine that he would have been able to, from Bethlehem, look to the east, across the Jordan Valley, the low-lying Jordan family, uh, valley rather, uh, across the Dead Sea, which is really low down, and, and he would have been able to see the hills and the mountains of Moab kind of rising in the distance. You can see that from Bethlehem. And I wonder if he thought, maybe there's food there. Maybe that's where I need to go and take my family. Maybe that's where we'll find rescue. So he makes the bold move and they head uh, to Moab. But threat becomes tragedy. The threat of famine becomes tragedy as Elimelech dies soon after the move. His wife, Naomi, now moves into the central figure of the story, bereft of her husband. At least she still has two sons. Because unlike Tamar, who was left as a childless widow, Naomi still had her boys. They grew up and they married local women. But within 10 years, every parent's nightmare became a reality as both the sons of Naomi died. And I imagine she was left as a broken shell of a woman. Later in the story, Naomi is going to uh, ask the people of Bethlehem when they return, don't call me Naomi. That's not my name anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitterness, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, she will say, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so the human side of this story is, is gritty and raw. Like so many, Naomi just can't understand how God could let this happen, and so she bristles towards him and towards others in her pain. The Hebrew is actually really fascinating uh, if, you, if you know Hebrew and you're able to take time to kind of study it, because what she does is she goes from calling him Lord, and where you see Lord written, usually in, in capitals in your Bible, it's usually a translation of the Hebrew Yahweh. And Yahweh is the personal name that God gave to Israel to say, because we have a personal relationship, you guys can call me Yahweh, kind of like that. But as it progresses later on, she's going to not call him Lord, but call him Almighty. And I I kind of read it. Almighty, which actually is from the Hebrew Shaddai, which is not a personal name anymore. Now it's kind of like a generic name for God. It speaks of his power and his transcendence, but not his closeness and his relationship. It's what a non-Israelite would call God. And so you can see in Naomi's words that she's doing this. She's distancing herself from God. I I can't call you Yahweh anymore. You're just Shaddai because I can't trust you because my family have gone. Maybe she thinks her family being judged for leaving the promised land. Maybe she thinks they're being judged because her sons married Moabite women. Who knows? We're not told. Not long after this, Naomi, now living in a foreign land alone, decides to make the move back to Bethlehem. She hears the famine's over, so head back they do. 
She begins the, the journey with her two Moabite daughters-in-law, but after a while she says, why are you guys coming? Get, stay in Moab. Stay, stay with your people. You may both be widows, but you're young enough to marry again and have children, have a life, and settle down. I'm just an old, bitter widow. Don't come with me. Even if I was to marry tonight and get pregnant tonight, would you wait until my son has grown up to marry you? You remember the custom of the Leverite marriage? No, that's crazy. That's not going to happen. You come with me, there's no future. Stay in Moab. Make a life for yourselves. But the, the women say, no, we want to come with you. Orpah eventually says, okay, that makes sense. And she goes back to Moab. But Ruth clings to her. And she says, do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, Naomi, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I'm going to die. There I will be buried. And here we have then two Moabite women who are showing great character and great care, particularly Ruth. We've talked over the last couple of weeks about this theme that's snaking through our series, and the theme is that um, uh, we have non-Israelite pagan Gentiles who actually show great acts of courage and faith and strength, right? Well, once again, we have Moabite women who were Israel's enemies, essentially, once again showing care and consideration for their Israelite mother-in-law doing the right thing. And there's a bit more of a hint of conversion here too because Ruth says, your God will be my God. I'll convert and worship Yahweh is what she's saying. Your people will be my people. Naomi sees how determined Ruth is and she allows her then to come with her. And back to Bethlehem they go. And they arrive just in time for the barley harvest. On their return, we get introduced to a man named Boaz, and he seems to be a godly man and a man with uh, great character, much like Ruth. And he also happens to be wealthy. He's a landowner, and it turns out he's a kinsman to Naomi. That means he's part of the family of Elimelech, the dead husband, and so he's a kinsman to Naomi. And that's sort of an interesting piece of information that we learn Ruth, meanwhile, gets on with the busy job of providing for herself and her mother-in-law. She, they are both now in a precarious uh, position, childless widows, poor, and so she begins to glean in the field. What that means is that she, she goes behind the people who are harvesting the field, and anything that they drop, they kind of pick up and take home uh, wheat or barley or whatever it is, and, and they, they, that's how they get their food. They pick up the scraps that are left. Now in Israel, there is this incredible provision made in the law for this to happen. God says to landowners, to farmers, to workers of the field, to those who own vineyards, he says, um, be purposefully inefficient in your harvest. And that's a little bit weird to us because we think, well, if you own a business or whatever, like the last thing you want to be as inefficient would be as efficient as possible and make as you know, much cuts as we can in order to, you to be as profitable as we can and so on. I mean, that's just the mantra of the West. God is saying, no, I want you to suck at the harvest. Like, be bad at it. Let me read it to you. It's from Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you should not reap to the very edges, like, like miss some of it. Or gather the gleanings of your harvest. If you drop stuff behind you, like, don't go and pick it up. Just let it, leave it. 
You shall not strip your vineyards bare. Don't take every grape. Or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien, alien being foreigner in the land. I am the Lord your God. Many times, church family, we've talked about the precarious nature of the poor, right? There was no EI in the ancient world. There was, there was no workers' comp if you got injured. There's no government uh, housing shelters. There's, there, there, there's none of that kind of stuff. There's no food banks. But built right into the Levitical law, God says, don't be very efficient with your harvest. Leave stuff behind on purpose. Don't go to the very edges of your field and don't strip every grape from it. Allow the poor and the foreigners and those who don't have a lot of hope, go and pick up and take what's left. So that's what Ruth's doing. Now, during the time of the judges where people are obeying the law, my guess is probably people like, forget that. I'm going to go right to the edges and take everything. But not Boaz. And so they're able to glean in the field. It turns out then that she is indeed gleaning in, in Boaz's, uh, um, the wealthy kinsman's kind of field. And you get kind of this sense of this is, this is, this is just not a coincidence. There's, there's sovereignty here going on. God is directing these apparent coincidences. He's, he's showing his kindness to Ruth, probably in response to Ruth's upright character and her, her desire to support her mother-in-law. And Boaz gets introduced as this God-fearing man, and he asks who the new woman is in the field. Who, who's this new woman? I haven't seen her before. And he learns who she is. She's the daughter-in-law of Naomi, and she came back from her, her own country, and she came to be with her, to care for her, to love her, and this is what he's learning. So he begins to show kindness to her. So these are the, some of the things he does. He, he approaches her and says, hey, hey, Ruth, Keep gleaning in my field. I'll make sure there's gleanings. Don't worry. Uh, just stay, stay in my field. And by the way, uh, Ruth, I've spoken to the men that are hanging around, and I've told them to leave you alone. Because probably, as a foreigner in the land, she could have been subject to racial discrimination because she was a Moabite, an enemy. Um, probably also, as a, as a woman who was desperate, she would probably be susceptible to sexual assault. And Boaz has said, while you're in my field, you're under my protection. I've told the men to leave you alone. They won't dare touch you. If you get thirsty, Ruth, feel free to go and drink from what my men are drawing up. At mealtime, Boaz invites Ruth to come and eat his table, and she eats until she's satisfied. And then he does this. When she gets up to go and reap again, he calls his men over and says, hey, when you're going along and you're, you're getting the harvest, grab a handful and drop it behind you for Ruth. Somebody's smitten, right? Somebody's a little smitten with Ruth, methinks. As we get to chapter three, there is this fascinating part of the story. We can only scratch the surface of this part of the story because we, uh, we don't have time uh, today. But uh, essentially, Ruth kind of proposes to, to Boaz, sort of, and it's really odd in that culture, uh, a woman being proactive in that sense. And so in the story, uh, there is more than one person in the family who can actually, um, or could, and, and morally should, uh, do something to secure Naomi's future and Ruth's future and so on, and, uh, and secure the land of Elimelech, which he still has. And so, so given that nobody seems to be taking any of that action, we have a woman again. 
stepping up to take initiative to secure the future, just like Rahab, just like Tamar, to secure the future and actually to secure the future of, of the line that Jesus will be born into. And so the story goes like this. Naomi comes out of her mourning, apparently, and seizes the opportunity that Boaz's kindness has presented. And she says, hey, Ruth, dress up, put on some perfume. Go over to the threshing floor because Boaz and the guys are going to be there. They're going to be threshing out the grain. And afterwards, they're going to have a meal. There'll probably be some dancing and some drinking and some hanging out. And then, then they'll get tired and they'll lay down. And they'll go to sleep. And when they go to sleep and it's dark, sneak up to Boaz and lie down by his feet. And so she does that. And, and I'd love to spend a lot more time diving into what all that could mean. <laughs> There's lots of different interpretations of what Ruth uh, could have been doing and the customs of the day and so on. But for our purposes, what she's doing is she's acting courageously. She is risking greatly. It could have blown up in her face. She could have lost the kindness of Boaz to her. But it turns out well. Boaz accepts what she's doing, and Ruth asks him to cover her with his cloak, which suggests this idea of protection, like coming under the wing. It's also suggestive of marriage, proposal. She reveals that she's the next of kin, and although there is actually somebody closer in line who has the legal right to marry Ruth, Boaz could perform the role of kinsman redeemer, thereby marry her, secure her future, Naomi's future, and buy Elimelech's land and make sure the land stays in the family line of Elimelech. And so the final part of the story is where the next of kin legally gives up his right uh, to the land and Boaz steps in and acts as kinsman redeemer. They marry, they have a child, the child gets named Obed, and Naomi becomes the nurse of Obed. So this beautiful, beautiful story of redemption in her, in her story, in her life. Just like Job had lost so much, and then at the end gets given far more in a new family, it kind of happens to Naomi as well. She gets to be grandma, and she gets this new family, and it's beautiful. Let me read the other bookend, Ruth 4, 17. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the descendants of Perez. Remember, Perez was born to Tamar and Judah. Perez became the father of Hezron, Hezron of Ram, Ram of Aminadab, Aminadab of Nashon, Nashon of Salmon, who ended up marrying Rahab, Salmon of Boaz, Boaz of Obed, Obed of Jesse, Jesse of David. And that's how the book of Ruth ends. And just as though Judges ends with this statement that everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes during this period, Ruth, the light in the dark ages, ends up with a genealogy that includes King David. And we, we need to hold the two ends of those two books up together and say, okay, I see what God's doing here. I see what's happening. The light in the darkness. God has been faithful to his covenant and the line, and the line of David, of course, will be repeated many times in reference to Jesus. Most people have been doing what is right in their own eyes, but some, a remnant, including a Moabite of all people, were doing what was right by law, by custom, by favor to others, to protect the poor, to maintain what was right, to honor Yahweh. 
Ruth the Moabite turns out to show more care and more honor to the line of Israel than the Israelites of that time did. And so once again, we have that kind of theme of righteous Gentiles outshining faithless covenant people, providing again more backdrop against which Jesus will say to the Pharisees uh, the same kinds of things, the same kind of challenge uh, to them. Character matters. Everyday small decisions that you make and I make that include character and integrity actually matters. And what's more, God cares about the small details. God sees you, and he cares about you, and he cares about what you care about. He's not only interested in cosmic redemption, he's also interested in single individuals and family lines that nobody else might be watching. He cares about the small things. And we're going to go to the communion table now. And, and so throughout Ruth, what we've been talking about is, is covenant faithfulness in many ways. It's a, it's a huge theme of Ruth. And so as we go to the communion table, talk about the ultimate covenant faithfulness. Jesus being faithful to the covenant that he's now going to create a new one coming out of the old one in continuity with but new. And that covenant is going to be established by his blood. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we, uh, yeah, if you don't have one of these, there's a couple of baskets at the front here. There's some at the back there if you, if you haven't got one. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to remember the body and the blood of Jesus that secured that new covenant for us as he died for your sins and he, just, he died for your future. He died for your family line. He died that you might be grafted in and adopted into the family. So be careful as you open the wrapper. And take um, the wafer. I think it's quite what Jesus necessarily had in mind when he ripped the big loaf of bread, but this will do. (laughs) This is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what it represents that is important to us today. And so this body was broken for you. And Paul said, for I received from the Lord what I handed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So 2,000 years later, we do this in remembrance of Jesus. Let's eat together. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All you who know him, let's partake in the blood of Christ together. Lord Jesus, um, 
we take communion this morning not as just some small religious ritual token, but we do so in faith. And as we ate and as we drank uh, together as a community, uh, we did it to remember you, to remember all that you did on the cross on our behalf. And we are nourished by the body and we're nourished by the blood. We are spiritually nourished by your presence. And we return thanks to you. We say thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us and for providing a way and paving a way for us not just to be forgiven, but actually to be given a whole new transformed life to become part of the family of God, that family line, and to look towards, in the midst of the darkness of our own age, to see the the light that shines in our age, that you are, are weaving a story that will one day reach a place where everything will be transformed. And that is our great hope, that we will not suffer and we will not mourn. Those days will be done, and we will live with you in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity with all joy and all peace. Amen. Amen.